Hello, folks. Welcome to the ninth episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at the Epic of Gilgamesh, a collection of tales that were stitched together in Babylon. Uh, all these tales come from ancient Sumeria and the regions in this, in this area of Mesopotamia in the Fertile Crescent in modern-day Iraq. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present, a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. Welcome back, everybody, to the second month of Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. I am so excited to be here with you all and to be reading another myth today. Something to let you all know about is that uh, I have moved house, I have moved to an apartment, and I will be moving again relatively soon. So there will be some motion and the audio quality might change a little bit in the next couple of months or even the next years <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to be stable as a 20-something person uh, in, in America at, at this moment. So I do move around a lot. So do expect things to change a little bit in audio quality. The reason I, I bring this up is because I'm recording very late. I'm recording at 1 a.m. So <laughs> I, I have purposefully stayed up on, on a, a not work night to record this podcast for you all. And uh, hopefully, because I, I live next to a street, there, are, there is not a horrible amount of construction sounds as, as time goes on, I really hope, because you know how it is. Anyways, so today we are going to be reading and discussing the Epic of Gilgamesh. We're only going to be reading the first uh, six tablets because it is a rather long tale. It's originally, as I said, from Babylonia and Sumeria, or Babylon and Sumer, and it's actually the longest text in Akkadian cuneiform. Akkadian is just the name we use for the uh, script that was used in Babylon, Assyria, and Sumeria. It's a sort of generalized lingua franca. The story affects our understanding of friendship, adventure, and immortality, even to the modern day. Despite losing this myth for centuries, if not millennia, from my recollection, it was the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria that led to this, because a lot of the stuff that was in there were copies of these really old uh, records, these really old stone tablets 
that no one was messing around with anymore. It was all papyrus or, or paper. Because no one was messing around with the stones, they were just sitting in these really, really old libraries. You know, if you think the Great Library of Alexandria is old, you have no idea because some of these libraries, like the library at Nineveh, they're just extremely old. Uh, in the 2000s, at least 1750 BCE at the latest. There's many different versions of this myth. The earliest was written down in 2150 BCE, although it is quite fragmentary and it's not regularly used in translations. It was likely that there would have been a number of different stories about Gilgamesh, a sort of series in the vein of Heracles or Hercules. This is because we find other myths that have to do with Gilgamesh's father and grandfather whose names were Lugalbandu and Emmerkur, respectively. And these myths seem to compete with the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it is eventually the Epic of Gilgamesh that won out. And a lot of these stories about Lugalbandu and Emmerkur are lost to time, really. We have only extremely fragmentary record of them. And these tales were pretty short. They, they would, would have been told over a campfire or in, a, in the town square. This was not something that was an epic at the time. It would have been a short little tale that was either humorous or told of a great feat of strength or explained something about the world, a simple myth. The collection of Gilgamesh stories that were created over centuries were eventually stitched together into the coherent epic that we can read today that was, well, retranslated in the 1800s at some point. One of these stories was Atrahasis, in fact, that was added into the coherent epic of Gilgamesh. It comes in at the end, and you'll recognize it in the next episode where we finish off the epic of Gilgamesh. Now, the stories traveled far and wide, reaching Greece, Anatolia, Persia, and even the Indus River Valley civilization, although that one is speculated. The old Babylonian version was made somewhere between 1900 and 1750 BCE, around the time that Atrahasis and many other myths were standardized. However, Gilgamesh would change significantly in the standard Babylonian version, written much later in the 600s. The best surviving tablets were found at Nineveh, written by Sinleke Unini. There were multiple copies written slightly different ways, making it perfect for translation. And I believe it, it would have been this one that ended up being translated first by English Assyriologists in the 1800s. It was commissioned by an Assyrian king named Assurbanipal, who we'll talk about more in our history section today. Uh, it was commissioned just before Babylon would return to power under King Cyrus. Now, what's really interesting about the myth is that Gilgamesh is semi-historical. The Sumerian king's list uses extremely long lengths of time to denote a mythic immortality of their rulers, and Gilgamesh is one of these rulers who has an unnaturally long reign. It makes it really difficult to date the actual reigns of these figures, or if they even existed at all. Like Lugal Bandu also shows up on there, and Erekur, and they live for crazy amounts of time, you know, like 700 years or something. And I think, to me, and probably to biblical scholars as well, and Torah scholars, they would say that this 
use of a very large number is intended to show wisdom and power. It's the idea that the longer we live, the more we know and the more power we have, the more power we hold. And also, the longer a king would reign, the better liked they probably were by their people. And so it gave them sort of a, a godly presence, that they were so liked by the people that they could reign for 700 years, or something like that. It is thought that Gilgamesh reigned somewhere in the 2800 to 2500 BCE range, if he was a real historical figure. He may have been an invading king who took the ancestry of Lugalbandu to show inheritance in the city of Uruk. However, this is, of course, speculative, and we really don't know. The reason people speculate this is because there are historical records of other kings doing this in the region around the same time, so it's suggested that Gilgamesh might have been part of this, one of these invading bands of people. Uh, a, a fun fact about the city of Uruk, which plays a predominant role as, as like the main city that Gilgamesh uh, is set in, has two sides displaying a, a, a binary, but also a non-dual nature. These sides are Inanna and Anu. Now the reason that I say it's non-dual is that Ayana was the name of Inanna's temple, which translates literally to house of the sky. Anu is the sky god. Now, Inanna is also considered the mother goddess in, or, or the great goddess in this, in this culture, and was a goddess of fertility and sex and love and crops and seasons lots of things. Uh, a lot of different gods mean lots of different things in, in Sumerian and Babylonian and Assyrian myth. So uh, one deity will have many, many meanings, similar to uh, Jewish myth as well. And Anu was a sky god, a, 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 not exactly the creator god, but in that realm, and was associated with maleness. It could have been considered a sort of great god. In that way, because of that name Aeana, it demonstrates that there is maleness in Inanna's temple, in woman. In woman there is man. Because Inanna is the descendant of Anu, she is in a way made of maleness too. It depicts this gender binary and queers it, actually and it displays that the world is in fact non-dual. In one city, we must have male and female equivalent. There must be a male in the temple of Inanna and a woman in the temple of Anu, if that makes sense. Sky and earth, if you, if you can follow. Now you're not getting away so easily without a, a uh, history lesson for today. And today we're going to do a little history lesson about the fall of Babylon and its reemergence. So if you'll remember from last time, uh, our very first episode actually, Atrahasis, we talked about how Babylon conquered a whole number of little city-states and created this Babylonian empire around the mid-1700s or so, around that time, and they ruled in the region for 200 to 250 years, but because of unclear boundaries, the empire couldn't hold up against the onslaught of the Hittites, who are a cultural group 
with relatively little recorded history about them. However, we will be talking more about them this month because we'll be telling a myth of theirs that has survived the, <laughs> the destruction that, that time is uh, to recorded works. And at this time, the Hittites were growing in power and were able to move all the way over into Babylon and actually take the city. Some of this was because Syria, Canaan, and Assyria formed independent kingdoms right after and around this event, which essentially meant that Babylon was surrounded by all sides with really no allies at all. So they were forced to surrender, and Babylon was turned over to the Kassites, which is another cultural group in the region. I think they were to the north. I think they were in modern-day Iran. I could be wrong on that, but uh, I think that's where they're from. And they ruled there for a while. It was actually a very interesting time because Babylon was renamed to Karduniash, and it actually remained with that name for 576 years. And although it lost a lot of power, it, it was still a holy city. So it, it did have some power religiously and culturally. Now, what makes this so interesting is that Assyria and the Kassites were the main people controlling Babylon at this time. And this use of the name change effectively stifled any sort of revolt in the city. That simple change, the change of identity, is one of the first in recorded history a change of meaning, in a way. Uh, all of a sudden, we have Karduniash. It is a different city. It is a different meaning. And we'll talk more about this as we get into the more obscure Sumerian and, and Mesopotamian myths, because they deal with this idea of covering, of one culture coming in and renaming, of uh, the stealing of different religious ideas, or the assimilation of them. That's what a lot of these myths are fundamentally about, especially as time goes on. Uh, we are actually relatively early on in the literature of Mesopotamia. People haven't really dealt with this mentally. They're nowhere near being able to wrap their heads around it. As time goes on, we'll see that they actually do wrap their heads around it, and it gives us a very modern understanding of colonialism. Assyria was the primary power in the region until 627 BCE when Ashurbanipal died. That's the person who had the Epic of Gilgamesh commissioned, actually. This uh, saw the, the slow fall of Karduniash and a return of Babylonian culture. At this time, the Babylonians and the Medes, led by Nabopolassar the Chaldean, were, were united, and they decided to attack the city of Nineveh which was a very important city. It had a library in it. It had a lot of uh, power in it. Pretty soon after this, Babylon starts to gain more control again. Uh, the people of Babylon actually do. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar II rose to power after Nabopolassar and conducted wide-reaching military campaigns. Egypt was attacked as well as the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judea, which was sacked and the temple was destroyed. Many of the Jews were brought to Babylon and wrote both the Tanakh and the Talmud at this time. And this is my history. I'm a Jew, and my people who lived in the kingdom of Judea, what people called Canaan, were essentially exiled from, from their own region. It's horrible. But we'll talk a lot more about Jewish history when we get to the Torah, or the Tanakh, as I, as I called it previously. 
Herodotus from Greece appeared around this time and wrote that Babylon had massive walls and hanging gardens, which were considered to be very impressive and put it up there as having these, you know, wonders. Uh, it was considered a very important cultural city. And in 549 BCE, Nabonidus was attacked by the Persian king Cyrus from Elam. Nabonidus was a devotee to the moon god Sin, which angered the followers of Marduk in Babylon. When Cyrus entered Babylon, he claimed that he was the returning hero of Marduk, easily received by the higher classes and priests of Babylonia. Now, we haven't talked about the Epic of Marduk, or the, uh, the Epic of Creation, I think it's called, but it has this character, Marduk, who is this returning god, even in the myth, is a returning god who is reclaiming power from Tiamat, who is this representation of the great goddess, again. So this use of Marduk against the moon god Sin, who would have been considered a lesser god by the people of Babylon, was using this myth to its advantage. And we'll tell that myth eventually. What's important to know is that Nabonidus gets kicked out <laughs> and Cyrus joins the city. Now Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to the kingdom of Judea and rebuild their temple. Understandings about Judaism shifted and caused Babylonian Jews to focus more on Torah and less on sacrifices and temple. The synagogue became the place of worship for the first time. And it's, it's rather interesting because this is when really there became a split between the Orthodox Jews who were in Judea, in Canaan, and those who understood that Judaism was not about where you were. There's this myth, especially in the modern day, that the Jews really want to have a homeland. We want to have a place. We want the Holy Land. That's not true, really. I'm an anti-Zionist, personally, and I don't feel that pushing Palestinians out of their homes is worth a few Jewish people being able to live in the historical kingdom of Canaan or the kingdom of Judea. It's stupid. It really pisses me off because we were understanding this from like 500 BCE on. The understanding was that you could move out of this one region. We were not locked. Those of us that had been exiled some of us didn't even want to return. And it's a lot of these Babylonian Jews that probably ended up migrating eventually to Russia and other regions that were slightly north of this area. Of course, some, some people pry from the kingdom of Judea and Canaan as well because these regions aren't that far apart. But there was definitely a contingent that felt that there was not a need to have Zion in a way. Now, there were brief moments of political importance that occurred in Babylon after this time, but it was clear that it was no longer the seat of power in the region. Darius stayed in the famous city and was killed, and there were a few kings who claimed monarchy, but were pretty quickly snuffed out by other powers. And it was eventually conquered by the Arabic Empire and adopted Islam, which is what you see today. It's Babylon is actually on the... Uh, is historically found exactly where Baghdad is. So if you go to Baghdad, you can actually stand where Babylon used to be. And there's probably some, some stuff there, some ruins and such outside the, the city and probably in the city too, that 
it still exists from from this time. Uh, probably not very much because it is quite a modern city these days, but probably a little bit. I think one of the most interesting things about Mesopotamia is that it is such a confusing melting pot. And it's a very early example of that. And so we can understand that, you know, people in this region, you know, an Iraqi is really not that different than an Iranian, right? They, a lot of them, their ancestors were all running around in this region. Everyone was running around. That's the truth. If you look anywhere, people were running around, having sex with people, it's a whole deal. And there's a lot of, we're all multicultural. That's what I'm trying to get at. We are all multicultural. None of us are truly indigenous to one place, even if we like to think we are. And all of us are truly indigenous to where we live. That's not to say that certain indigenous peoples don't have claims to their land. They do. And they should be given that land if some sort of usurper invader were to take it from them. <coughs> American government, <coughs> Canadian government, <coughs> lots of different governments around the world. Nonetheless, that's why I tell this history, because it's start. I think it's starting, at least I hope, to get you to understand that you are not a monolith. Nobody is a monolith. No people is a monolith. We are all so affected by the world around us. You know, I once heard from this, I don't remember his name, but this Irish mystic who my, my dance teacher, Dr. Molly Shanahan, told me to, to listen to. And I listened to this podcast. It was amazing because this one thing stepped out to me. It was this one simple idea, and it was the idea that of the muse as other people. And this is the essence of this in history, what we just talked about. Because the Jews were affected by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were affected by the Assyrians and the Sumerians, and the Jews for that matter. And thus the Jews were affected by the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the, the Kassites. And, you know, everyone is affected by everybody here. You know, I haven't even really talked about Assyria that much. That's a whole, that's a whole thing. When you talk about a people, question whether we can define them in that stereotypical fashion that people like to. Do all Jews have dark curly hair? Well, sometimes, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. I don't have curly hair, but I do have dark hair. And does that make me any less Jewish than my friend who has dark curly hair and a really long nose? No, it doesn't, because no people is a monolith. No people is the stereotype. And so we need to get away from archetypes and stereotypes when we are interpreting history, when we are trying to understand a myth. That's a whole bunch of talk. And honestly, this myth is pretty long. So hopefully I didn't bore anybody to, to tears. <laughs> and let's get into the myth. of Gilgamesh, Tablet 1, and we're going to read 
six tablets today. So, uh, and six tablets on the next episode, which will be coming up quite soon. This is from the standard Babylonian version. Of him who found out all things, I shall tell the land. Of him who experienced everything, I shall teach the whole. He searched lands everywhere. He who experienced the whole gained complete wisdom. He found out what was secret and uncovered what was hidden. He brought back a tale of times before the flood. He had journeyed far and wide, weary and at last resigned. He engraved all toils on a memorial monument of stone. He had the wall of Uruk built, the sheepfold of holiest Aana, the pure treasury. See its wall, which is like a copper band. Survey its battlements, which nobody else can match. Take the threshold, which is from time immemorial. Approach Ayana, the home of Ishtar, which no future king nor any man will ever match. Go up onto the wall of Uruk and walk about. Inspect the foundation platform and scrutinize the brickwork. Testify that its bricks are baked bricks and that the seven counselors must have laid its foundations. One square mile is city, one square mile is orchards, one square mile is clay pits, as well as the open ground of Ishtar's temple. Three square miles and the open ground comprise Uruk. Look for the copper tablet box, undo its bronze lock. Open the door to its secret, lift out the lapis lazuli tablet and read it. The story of that man, Gilgamesh, who went through all kinds of sufferings. He was superior to other kings, a warrior lord of great stature, a hero born of Uruk, a goring wild bull. He marches at the front as leader. He goes behind the support of his brothers, a strong net, the protection of his men, the raging flood wave which can destroy even a stone wall. Son of Lugalbandu, Gilgamesh, perfect in strength. Son of the lofty cow, the wild cow Ninsun. He is Gilgamesh, perfect in splendor. Who opened up passes in the mountains? Who could dig pits even in the mountainside? Who crossed the ocean, the broad seas, as far as the sunrise? Who inspected the edges of the world, kept searching for eternal life? Who reached Utnapishtim, the far distant, by force? Who restored to their rightful place cult centers which the flood had ruined? There is nobody among the kings of teeming humanity who can compare with him. Who can say, I am king, beside Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh was named from birth for fame. Two-thirds of him was divine and one-third mortal. Belet Ili designed the shape of his body, made his form perfect. Now, here is the first blank of the myth, if you'll remember from Atrahasis. We have occasional blanks in these old stone tablets, and so I will use blank and this many lines missing to indicate that. Made his form perfect, blank. Blank was proud, blank. Two lines are missing.
In Uruk, the sheepfold, he would walk about, show himself superior, his head held high like a wild bull. He had no rival, and at his puku, his weapons would rise up, his comrades have to rise up. The young men of Uruk became dejected in their private quarters. Gilgamesh would not leave any son alone for his father. Day and night, his behavior was overbearing. He was the shepherd, blank. He was their shepherd, yet blank. Powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, Gilgamesh would not leave young girls alone. The daughters of warriors, the brides of young men, the gods often heard their complaints. The gods of heaven blank the lord of Uruk. Did Aruru create such a rampant wild bull? Is there no rival? At the Puku, his weapons rise up, his comrades have to rise up. Gilgamesh will not leave any son alone for his father. Day and night, his behavior is overbearing. He is the shepherd of Uruk the sheepfold. He is their shepherd, yet blank. Powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, Gilgamesh will not leave young girls alone, the daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. Anu often hears their complaints. They called upon great Aruru. You, Aruru, you created mankind. Now create someone for him to match the ardoir of his energies. Let them be regular rivals, and let Uruk be allowed peace. When Aruru heard this, she created inside herself the word of Anu. Aruru washed her hands, pinched off a piece of clay, cast it out, into open country. She created a primitive man, Ankidu, the warrior, offspring of silence, skybolt of Ninurta. His whole body was shaggy with hair. He was furnished with tresses like a woman. His locks of hair grew luxuriant like grain. He knew neither people nor country. He was dressed as cattle are. With gazelles he eats vegetation, with cattle he quenches his thirst at the watering place. With wild beasts he satisfies his need for water. A hunter, a brigand, came face to face with him beside the watering place. He saw him on three successive days beside the watering place. The hunter looked at him and was dumbstruck to see him in perplexity. He went back into his house and was afraid, stayed mute and was silent and was ill at ease, his face worried. Blank the grief in his innermost being. His face was like that of a long-distance traveler. The hunter made his voice heard and spoke. He said to his father, Oh, father, there was a young man who came from the mountain. On the land he was strong, he was powerful. His strength was very hard, like a scoibolt of Anu. He walks about on the mountain all the time. All the time he eats vegetation with cattle. All the time he puts his feet in the water, at the watering place. I am too frightened to approach him. He kept filling in the pits that I dug, blank. He kept pulling out the traps that I laid. He kept helping cattle, wild beasts of open country to escape my grasp. He will not allow me to work in my open country. His father spoke to him, to the hunter. Blank Aruk, blank Gilgamesh, blank his open country. His strength is very hard, like a skybolt of Anu. Go, 
Set your face towards Uruk. Blank the strength of a man. Blank lead her forth. And blank the strong man. When he approaches the cattle at the watering place, she must take off her clothes and reveal her attractions. He will see her and go close to her. Then his cattle, who have grown up in open country with him, will become alien to him. He listened to the advice of his father, blank. The hunter went off to see Gilgamesh. He took the road, set his face towards Uruk, entered the presence of Gilgamesh, blank. There was a young man who came from the mountain. On the land he was strong, he was powerful. His strength is very hard, like a skybolt of Anu. He walks about on the mountain all the time, all the time he eats vegetation with cattle. All the time he puts his feet in the water at the watering place. I am too frightened to approach him. He kept filling in the pits that I dug. He kept pulling out the traps that I laid. He kept helping cattle, wild beasts of open country to escape my grasp. He did not allow me to work in the open country. Gilgamesh spoke to him, to the hunter. Go, hunter, lead forth the harlot Shamhat. And when he approaches the cattle at the watering place, she must take off her clothes and reveal her attractions. He will see her and go close to her. Then his cattle, who have grown up in open country with him, will become alien to him. The hunter went. He led forth the harlot Shamhat with him. And they took the road. They made the journey. In three days they reached the appointed place. Hunter and Harlot sat down in their hiding place. For one day, then a second, they sat at the watering place, waiting. Then cattle arrived at the watering place. They drank. Then wild beasts arrived at the water. They satisfied their need. And he, Ankidu, whose origin is the mountain, who eats vegetation with gazelles, drinks at the watering place with cattle, satisfies his need for water with wild beasts. Shamhat looked at the primitive man, the murderous youth from the depths of open country. Here he is, Shamhat. Bear your bosom. Open your legs and let him take in your attractions. Do not pull away. Take wind of him. He will see you and come close to you. Spread open your garments and let him lie upon you. Do for him the primitive man as women do. Then his cattle, who have grown up in open country with him, will become alien to him. His love-making he will lavish upon you. Shamhat loosened her undergarments, opened her legs, and he took in her attractions. She did not pull away. She took wind of him. Spread open her garments, and he lay upon her. She did for him the primitive man as women do. His love-making, his love-making he lavished upon her. For six days and seven nights Ankidu was aroused and poured himself into Shamhat. When he was sated with her charms, he set his face towards the open country of his cattle. The gazelles saw Ankidu and scattered. The cattle of open country kept away from his body, for Ankidu had stripped. His body was too clean. His legs, which used to keep pace with his cattle, were at a standstill. Ankidu had been diminished. He could not run as before, yet he had acquired judgment, had become wiser. He turned back. He sat at the harlot's feet. The harlot was looking at his expression and he listened attentively to what the harlot said. The harlot spoke to him, to Ankidu. 
You have become profound, Anki Du. You have become like a god. Why should you roam open country with wild beasts? Come, let me take you into Uruk, the sheepfold, to the pure house, the dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh is perfect in strength and is like a wild bull, more powerful than any of the people. She spoke to him, and her speech was acceptable. Knowing his own mind now, he would seek for a friend. Ankidu spoke to her, to the harlot. Come, Shamat, invite me to the pure house, the holy dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh is perfect in strength and is like a wild bull, more powerful than any of the people. Let me challenge him, and I, by saying, In Uruk, I shall be the strongest. I shall go in and alter destiny. One who is born in open country has superior strength. Shamhat answered, Come on, let us go forth and let me please you. Blank, there are, I know. Go, Ankidu, into Uruk the sheepfold, where young men are girded with sashes, and every day is a feast day, where the drums are beaten and girls show off their figures, adorned with joy and full of happiness. In bed at night, great men blank. Oh, Ankidu, you who know nothing of life, let me show you Gilgamesh, a man of joy and woe. Look at him, observe his face. He is beautiful in manhood, dignified. His whole body is charged with seductive charm. He is more powerful in strength of arms than you. He does not sleep by day or night. Oh, Ankidu, change your plan for punishing him. Shamash loves Gilgamesh, and Anu, Elil, and Ea made him wise. Before you came from the mountains, Gilgamesh was dreaming about you in Uruk. Gilgamesh arose and described a dream. He told it to his mother. Mother, I saw a dream in the night. There were stars in the sky for me, and something like a skybolt of Anu kept falling upon me. I tried to lift it up, but it was too heavy for me. I tried to turn it over, but I couldn't budge it. The countrymen of Uruk were standing over it. The countrymen had gathered over it. The men crowded over it. The young man massed over it. The young men massed over it. They kissed its feet like very young children. I loved it as a wife, doted on it. I carried it, laid it at your feet. You treated it as equal to me. The wise mother of Gilgamesh, all-knowing, understood. She spoke to her lord, the wise wild cow Ninsun, all-knowing, understood. She spoke thus to Gilgamesh. When there were stars in the sky for you, and something like a skybolt of Anu kept falling upon you, you tried to lift it up. But it was too heavy for you. You tried to turn it over, but you couldn't budge it. You tried to lift it, but it was too heavy for you. You carried it, laid it at my feet. I treated it as equal to you, and you loved it as a wife and doted on it. 
It means a strong partner shall come to you, one who can save the life of a friend. He will be the most powerful in strength of arms in the land. His strength will be great as that of a skybolt of Anu. You will love him as a wife. You will dote upon him. He will always keep you safe. This is the meaning of your dream. Gilgamesh spoke to her, to his mother. Mother, I have had a second dream. An axe was thrown down in the street of Uruk the sheepfold, and they gathered over it. The countrymen of Uruk stood over it. The land gathered together over it. The men massed over it. I carried it, laid it at your feet. I loved it as a wife, doted upon it, and you treated it as equal to me. The wise mother of Gilgamesh, all-knowing, understood. She spoke to her son. The wise wild cow Ninsun, all-knowing, understood. She spoke to Gilgamesh. The copper axe which you saw is a man. You will love it as a wife. You will dote upon it, and I shall treat it as equal to you. A strong partner will come to you, one who can save the life of a comrade. He will be the one most powerful in strength of arms in the land. His strength will be as great as that of a skybolt of Anu. Gilgamesh spoke to his mother. Let it fall, then. According to the word of Elil, the great counselor, I shall gain a friend to advise me. Nin soon retold his dreams. Thus, Shamhat heard the dreams of Gilgamesh and told them to Ankidu. The dreams mean that you will love one another. Tablet 2. There's a gap of about 45 lines here. Ankidu was seated before her in Tiranu. Blank tears. Blank trusted Muliltu. Gap of a few lines. Why blank? They were consulting together by themselves, blank. At his decision, blank. Who understood in his heart, blank. Which Shamhat, blank. One garment, blank. And a second garment, which blank. She held him by the hand and like gods, blank. To the shepherd's hut, blank. The shepherds were gathered around him of their own accord and by themselves. The young man, how like Gilgamesh in build, mature in build, as sturdy as battlements. Why was he born in the mountains? He is just as powerful in strength of arms as a skybolt of Anu. They put food in front of him, blank. They put drink in front of him, blank. Ankidu would not eat the food. He narrowed his eyes and stared. Gap of a few lines. He slew wolves and blank. Blank the herdsman blank. Ankidu blank a herdsman blank. Blank you stayed at home blank. Blank Uruk the sheepfold blank. Gap of one line. He stood in the street of Uruk the sheepfold. Blank the strong blank. He barred the way of Gilgamesh. The country of Uruk was standing around him. The country gathered together over him. The men massed over him. The young men crowded over him, kissed his feet like very young children. When the young man blank, the bed was laid at night for Ishara, and for God like Gilgamesh, an equal match was found. Ankidu blocked his access at the door of the father-in-law's house. 
he would not allow Gilgamesh to enter. They grappled at the door of the father-in-law's house, wrestled in the street in the public square. Door frames shook, walls quaked, and then there's about 37 lines missing. He was the most powerful in strength of arms in the land. His strength was as great of that of a skybolt of Anu, a build as sturdy as battlements blank. The wise mother of Gilgamesh, all-knowing, spoke to her son. The wild cow Ninsun spoke to Gilgamesh. My son, blank, bitterly, blank, gap of one line, seized, blank. He brought up to his door, blank, bitterly he was weeping. Ankidu had no, blank, his hair is allowed to hang loose, blank. He is born in open country, and who can prevail over him? Ankidu stood, listened to him speaking, pondered, and then sat down, began to cry. His eyes grew dim with tears, his arms slackened, his strength faltered. Then they grasped one another and embraced and held hands. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Ankidu, why are your eyes filled with tears? About 29 lines missing. And I'd like to take this moment to reflect on something about the way that Ankidu and Gilgamesh are interacting here and how their relationship is built up and how it will continue. But I think it's important to note how homoerotic it is in the modern sense. Of course, we don't know how friendships acted in Babylon or Sumeria. We have no record other than really this myth and a few random little tiny historical things that suggested that people were friends, which doesn't really tell us all that much. And I think it's very telling that these two men, they embrace, they hold hands, they don't shy away from touch and love and a meaningful expression of emotion. Why are you crying? Gilgamesh says. Gilgamesh is like, often thought of as this paragon of masculinity. And it's like, no, I mean, yeah, but no. He's so much more than that. And this is why I love this myth, because we have this beautiful, very homoerotic relationship that is sitting just below this hero myth. You know, maybe that was a way for people to uh, express themselves if that wasn't accepted in society. Or, alternatively, it is transcribing what was allowed in society, which is probably the more likely thing considering this was written by and for the elites of the civilization for the kings. And so it was probably pretty normalized, which is awesome and speaks to the way in which gender binaries and just in general sexuality and gender worked really differently back then. Halil has destined him to keep the pine forest safe to be the terror of people, whom Baba, whose shout is the flood weapon, whose utterance is fire, and whose breath is death, can hear for a distance of sixty leagues through the, of the forest, so who can penetrate his forest? Aleel has destined him to keep the pine forest safe, to be the terror of people. Debility would seize anyone who penetrated his forest. Gilgamesh spoke to him, to Ankidu. Are you saying that, blank? Gap of 34 lines. There's a lot of gaps right in this beginning section. And it skips over some of that 
friendship with Gilgamesh and Ankidu, as well as the buildup to the fight with Umbaba, who is the Umbaba referred to here, who's a monster of the pine forest, which was an area probably north of Iraq and Babylon and Sumeria and all these regions. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke to Ankidu. My friend, are there not blank? Are there no children blank? Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke to Gilgamesh. My friend, were we to go to him blank? Umbaba blank. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke to Ankidu. My friend, we really should blank. Gap of a few lines. They sat and pondered on the matter. We made a Hashinu axe. Blank. A Pashu axe with a whole talent of bronze for each half. Their swords weighed a whole talent each. Blank. Their belts weighed a whole talent each. Their belts blank. A gap of one line. Listen to me, young men, young men of Uruk who know blank. I am adamant. I shall take the road to Umbaba. I shall face unknown opposition. I shall ride along an unknown road. Give me your blessing, since I have decided on the course that I may enter the city gate of Uruk again in future and celebrate the New Year Festival once again in future years, and take part in the New Year Festival in years to come. Let the New Year Festival be performed. Let joy resound, blank. Let Iluru cries ring out in blank. Ankidu gave advice to the elders. The young men of Uruk, blank. Tell him not to go to the pine forest. That journey is not to be undertaken, a young man blank. The guardian of the pine forest blank, gap of a few lines. The great counselors of Uruk rose up and gave an opinion to Gilgamesh. You are still young, Gilgamesh. You are impetuous to blank. But you do not know what you will find blank. Umbaba, whose shout is the flood weapon, whose utterance is fire and whose breath is death, can hear for up to sixty leagues through the blank of his forest. Whoever goes down to his forest blank or two, who even among the Ijiji can face him? Elil destined him to keep the pine forest safe, to be the terror of people. Gilgamesh listened to the speech of the great counselors. And then there is a gap of a few lines. And so ends Tablet 2 and begins Tablet 3. He who leads the way will save his comrade. He who knows the paths, he will guard his friend. Let Ankidu go in front of you. He knows the way of the pine forest. He can look at the light. He can look at the fight and instruct in the battle. Let Ankidu guard the friend, keep the comrade safe. Bring him back safe in person for brides, so that we are in our assembly may rely on you as king, and that you in turn as king may rely on us again. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Ankidu, Come, my friend, let us go to the great palace, to Ninsun, the great queen. Ninsun is wise, all-knowing, she understands. 
She will set the steps of good advice at our feet. They grasped each other by the hand, and Gilgamesh and Ankidu went to the great palace, to Ninsun, the great queen. Gilgamesh rose up and entered into blank. Ninsun, I am adamant. I shall take the distant path to where Umbaba lives. I shall face unknown opposition. I shall ride along an unknown road until the day when, having traveled far and wide, I finally reach the pine forest. Until I slay ferocious Umbaba and exterminate from the land something evil which Shamash hates. There's then about five lines missing. Blank into your presence. Ninsun paid attention to all the words of Gilgamesh, her son. Ninsun entered her chamber, blank soap plant. She put on a garment, adornment of her body, put on toggle pins, adornment of her breast, blank wore her crown on her head, blank, blank she went up onto the roof. She came before Shamash, made a smoke offering, made a Serginu offering before Shamash and raised her arms. Why did you single out my son, Gilgamesh? And now you have affected him, and he will take the distant path to where Umbaba lives. He faces an unknown struggle. He will ride along an unknown road until the day when, having traveled far and wide, he finally reaches the pine forest until he slays ferocious Umbaba and exterminates from the land something evil which you hate. On the day when you blank at the side of blank, may Aya, the daughter-in-law, not be too fearful of you to commend him to you. Entrust him to the night watchman. Blank whip, blank. There is then a long gap of about fifty or so lines. Blank, Gilgamesh, blank. He extinguished the smoke offering and blank. He called Ankidu to him and gave his decision. Ankidu, you are a strong man, though not from the same womb as I. Now, your offspring shall be dedicated to Shamash with the oblates of Gilgamesh. Priestesses, devotees, and votaresses, it has put an obligation on Ankidu's shoulders. He, Ankidu, has taken a wife from the gods and he shall bring up daughters of gods. I and Ankidu blank, he took to blank. Ankidu addressed his words to Ninsun. Gilgamesh blank, there are then three fragmentary lines. Blank to the pine forest, whether a month or blank, whether a year or blank. Another gap of about 31 lines. Let Ankidu guard the friend, Keep the comrade safe. Let him bring him back safe in person for brides, so that we in our assembly may rely on you as king, and that you in turn, as king, may rely on us again. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, turn back blank. A journey that is not blank. A gap of about forty lines. Tablet four. At twenty leagues they ate their ration. At thirty leagues they stopped for the night. Fifty leagues they traveled during the day. The distance took from the new moon to the full moon. Then three days more they came to Lebanon. 
There they dug a pit in front of Shamash. They refilled their water skins. Gilgamesh went up onto the mountain and made his flower offering, flower like bakery flower, and made his flower offering to blank. O oh, mountain, bring me a dream, a favorable one. Ankidu arranged it for him, for Gilgamesh. A dust devil passed by, and he or it fixed blank. He made him lie down inside the circle and blank. Blank like wild barley, blank, blood, blank. Gilgamesh sat with his chin on his knees. Sleep, which spills out over people, overcame him. In the middle watch, he finished his sleep. He rose up and said to his friend, Ankidu, My friend, didn't you call me? Then why am I awake? Didn't you touch me? Why am I so upset? Didn't a god pass by? Then why is my flesh so feeble? My friend, I had a dream, and the dream that I had was extremely upsetting. At the foot of the mountain blank, blank fell or hit blank. We were like flies blank. He who was born in open country and blank. Ankidu explained the dream to his friend. My friend, your dream is favorable. The dream is very significant, blank. My friend, the mountain which you saw, blank, means we shall seize Umbaba, slay him, and cast his corpse onto waste ground. At the light of dawn, we shall hear the favorable word of Shamash. At twenty leagues, they ate their ration. At thirty leagues, they stopped for the night. There they dug a pit in front of Shamash. Gilgamesh went up onto the mountain and made his flower offering to blank. O oh, mountain, bring me a dream, a favorable one. Ankidu arranged it for him, for Gilgamesh. Gap into which the following may be restored, although this came from the previous section, so take it with a grain of salt. A dust devil passed by, and he or it fixed blank. He made him lie down inside the circle and blank. Blank while like wild barley blank. Gilgamesh sat with his chin on his knees. Sleep, which spills out over people, overcame him. In the middle watch, he finished his sleep. He rose up and said to his friend, My friend, didn't you call me? Then why am I awake? Didn't a god pass by? Then why is my flesh so feeble? My friend, I had a second dream, and the dream that I had was extremely upsetting. The second dream is not preserved at all, and there's about 20 lines missing after this section. My friend, this is the explanation of your dream. Umbaba, like blank, until light flared up, blank, we shall place on top of him, blank. We were furious at Umbaba, blank. Blank, we stood over him, and in the morning the word of Shamash was favorable. At twenty leagues they ate their ration. At thirty leagues they stopped for the night. Fifty leagues they traveled during the day. There they dug a pit in front of Shamash. They refilled their water skins. Gilgamesh went up onto the mountain and made his flower offering to Blank. O oh, mountain, bring me a dream, a favorable one. Ankidu arranged it for him, 
for Gilgamesh. A dust devil passed by, and he or it fixed blank. He made him lie down inside the circle and blank. Blank like wild barley blank. Gilgamesh sat with his chin on his knees. Sleep, which spills out over people, overcame him. In the middle watch, he finished his sleep. He rose up and said to his friend, My friend, didn't you call me? Then why am I awake? Didn't you touch me? Why am I so upset? Didn't a god pass by? Then why is my flesh so feeble? My friend, I had a third dream, and the dream that I had was extremely upsetting. Heaven cried out. Earth groaned. Day grew silent. Darkness emerged. Lightning flashed. Fire broke out. Flames crackled. Death rained down. Then sparks were dimmed, and the fire was extinguished. The coals which kept falling turned to embers. Let us go back down to open country where we can get advice. Ankidu listened and made him accept his dream. He spoke to Gilgamesh. There's a gap of 23 lines. Uh, we are losing the entire interpretation of the third dream. And then there's another 45 lines or so that just aren't really present. There's six lines that are partially preserved. So these are really speculative. And uh, certain words could be flipped or switched or changed because we just don't have good record of them. One alone cannot blank. They are strangers blank. It is a slippery path, and one does not blank, but two blank, two blank. A three-stranded cord is hardest to break. A strong lion cannot prevail over two of its own cubs. Then there's another gap of about 15 lines. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, How can I go down into the pine forest, or open up the path when my arms are paralyzed? Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Ankidu, Why, my friend, do we talk like cowards? We can cross all the mountains blank, blank to our face, before we have cut down pines. My friend, experienced in conflict, who has blank battle, you have rubbed yourself with plants, so you need not fear death. You shall have a double mantle of radiance like blank. Your shout shall be as loud as a kettle drum. Paralysis shall leave your arms, and impotence shall leave your loins. Hold my hand, my friend. Let us set off. Your heart shall soon burn for conflict. Forget death, and think only of life. Man is strong, prepared to fight, responsible. He who goes in front and guards his friend's body shall keep the comrades safe. They shall have established fame for their future. Blank they arrived together. Blank of their words they stood. They stood and admired the forest. Tablet 5. They stood and admired the forest. Gazed and gazed at the height of the pines. Gazed and gazed at the entrance to the pines. Where Umbaba made tracks as he went to and fro, the paths were well-trodden and the road was excellent. They beheld the Pine Mountain, dwelling place of gods, shrine of Irnini. The pines held up their luxuriance even on the face of the mountain. Their shade was good, filling one with happiness. Undergrowth burgeoned, entangling the forest. A gap of eight lines. 
They likely, during this gap, entered the forest and encountered Umbaba, as the next line is. Umbaba made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, The fool Gilgamesh and the brutish man ought to ask themselves, Why have you come to see me? Your friend Ankidu is small fry who does not know his own father. You are so very small that I regard you as I do a turtle or a tortoise, which does not suck to mother's milk, so I do not approach you. Even if I were to kill you, would I satisfy my stomach? Why, blank Gilgamesh, have you let him reach me? Blank. So I shall bite through your, his windpipe and neck, Gilgamesh, and leave your, his body for birds of the forest, roaring lions, birds of prey, and scavengers. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Ankidu, My friend, Umbaba has changed his mood and has come upon him blank and my heart trembles lest he blank suddenly. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, why do you talk like a coward? And your speech was feeble, and you tried to hide. Now, my friend, he has drawn you out, with the blowpipe of the coppersmith for heating, to count back each league swollen with the heat, each league of cold to dispatch the flood weapon, to lash with the whip. Don't retrace your footsteps. Don't turn back. Blank. Make your blows harder. Then there's a gap of a few lines. Gilgamesh's tears flowed before Shamash. Remember what you said in Uruk. Stand there and listen to me. Shamash heard the words of Gilgamesh, scion of Uruk, and said, as soon as a loud voice from the sky calls down to him, rush, stand up to him, let him not enter the forest. Let him not go down to the wood, nor blank. Umbaba will not be clothed in seven cloaks. He will be wearing only one. Six are taken off, like a charging wild bull which pierces blank. He shouts only once, but fills one with terror. The guardian of the forests will shout blank. Blank. Umbaba, like blank, will shout. A gap of unknown length. As soon as the swords blank, blank from the sheaths blank, streaked with verdigris blank, dagger, sword blank, one blank, they wore blank. Umbaba made his voice heard and spoke. He will not go blank. He will not go blank. Seven illegible lines. May Elil blank. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He addressed his speech to Umbaba. One alone cannot blank. They are strangers blank. It is a slippery path and one does not blank, but two blank, two blank. A three-stranded cord is hardest to break. A strong lion cannot prevail over two of its own cubs. Three broken lines, and then a gap of uncertain length, and then another two broken lines. He struck his head and matched him. They stirred up the ground with the heels of their feet. Sirara, 
and Lebanon were split apart at their gyrations. White clouds grew black. Death dropped down over them like a fog. Shamash summoned up great tempests against Umbaba, south wind, north wind, east wind, west wind, morning wind, gale, sharparziku wind, imhulu wind, wind ashaku, wintry wind, tempest, whirlwind, thirteen winds rose up at him and Umbaba's face grew dark. He could not charge forwards, he could not run backwards. Thus, the weapons of Gilgamesh succeeded against Umbaba. Umbaba gasped for breath. He addressed Gilgamesh. You, you are young, Gilgamesh. Your mother gave birth to you. And you are the offspring of blank. You rose at the command of Shamash, lord of the mountain. And you are the scion of Uruk, King Gilgamesh. Blank, Gilgamesh, blank, blank. Gilgamesh, blank. I shall make them grow luxuriantly for you in blank. As many trees as you blank, I shall keep for you myrtle wood, blank. Timbers to be the pride of your palace. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, don't listen to the words of Umbaba. Three broken lines and then a long gap of fifteen. You have found out the nature of my force, the nature of my dwelling, and now you know all there is. I should have taken you and slain you at the entrance to my forest's growth. I should have given your flesh to be eaten by the birds of the forest, roaring lions, birds of prey, and scavengers. But now, Ankidu, it is in your power to... <sighs> blank. So tell Gilgamesh to spare my life. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, finish him off. Slay him. Grind him up, that I may survive. Umbaba, the guardian of the pine forest. Finish him off. Slay him. Grind him up, that I may survive. Umbaba, the guardian of the forest. Do it before the leader Alil hears. Blank. Lest the gods be filled with fury at us. Blank. Elil in Nippur, Shamash in Sipar, set up an eternal memorial to tell how Gilgamesh slew Umbaba. Umbaba listened and blank. A gap of forty-four lines. You sit like a shepherd, blank, and just like blank, no Ankidu, thus settle your own release and tell Gilgamesh that he may save his life. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, my friend, finish off Umbaba, the guardian of the pine forest. Finish him off, slay him, and grind him up, that I may survive. Do it before the leader Elil hears, lest the gods be filled with fury at us blank. Elil in Nippur, Shamash in Sipar, set up an eternal memorial to tell how Gilgamesh slew Umbaba. Umbaba listened, and blank. Gap of another thirteen lines. Neither one of them shall outlive his friend. 
Gilgamesh and Ankidu shall never become old men. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, I talk to you, but you don't listen to me. Two broken lines. Blank of his friend, blank at his side. Blank. Blank until he pulled out the entrails. Blank he it springs away. Blank sharpens teeth. Blank abundance fell onto the mountain. Blank abundance fell onto the mountain. Another thirty lines missing. Blank their dark patch of verdigris. Gilgamesh was cutting down the trees. Ankidu kept tugging at the stumps. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, I have had a fully mature pine cut down, the crown of which butted against the sky. I made a door six poles high and two poles wide. Its doorpost is a cubit. Its lower and upper hinges are made from a single blank. Let the Euphrates carry it to Nipur. Nipur blank, blank. They tied together a raft. They put down blank. Ankidu embarked blank, and Gilgamesh blank the head of Umbaba. He washed his filthy hair. He cleaned his gear. Tablet 6. He washed his filthy hair. He cleaned his gear. Shook out his locks over his back, threw away his dirty clothes and put on fresh ones. He clothed himself in robes and tied on a sash. Gilgamesh put his crown on his head, and Ishtar, the princess, raised her eyes to the beauty of Gilgamesh. Come to me, Gilgamesh, and be my lover. Bestow on me the gift of your fruit. You can be my husband, and I can be your wife. I shall have a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold harnessed for you, with wheels of gold and horn of elmeshu stone. You shall harness umu demons as great mules. Enter into our house through the fragrance of pine. When you enter our house, the wonderfully wrought threshold shall kiss your feet. Kings, nobles, princes shall bow down before you. The verdure of mountain and country shall bring you produce. Your goats shall bear triplets, your ewes twins. Your loaded donkey shall outpace the mule. Your horses shall run proud at the chariot. Your ox shall be unrivaled at the yoke. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Ishtar, the princess, What could I give you if I possessed you? I would give you body oil and garments. I would give you food and sustenance. Could I provide you with bread fit for gods? Could I provide you with ale fit for kings? Blank. Could I heap up blank? Blank a robe. Blank if I possess you. You would be blank ice. A draughty door that can't keep out winds and gusts. A palace that rejects its own warriors. An elephant which blank its covering, bitumen which stains its carrier, a water skin which soaks its carrier, a juggernaut which smashes a stone wall, a battering ram which destroys blank of war, a shoe which bites into the foot of its wearer, which of your lovers lasted forever, which of your masterful paramours went to heaven. Come, let me describe your lovers to you. 
he of the sheep, blank, knew him for Domuzzi, the lover of your youth. You decreed that he should keep weeping year after year. You loved the colorful Alalu bird, but you hit him and broke his wing. He stays in the woods crying, my wing. You loved the lion, whose strength is complete, but you dug seven and seven pits for him. You loved the horse, so trustworthy in battle, but you decreed the whip, goad, and lash for him. You decreed that he should gallop seven leagues non-stop. You decreed that he should be overwrought and thirsty. You decreed endless weeping for his mother, Sililu. You loved the shepherd, herdsman, and chief shepherd, who was always heaping up the glowing ashes for you and cooked you lambs for you every day. But you hit him and turned him into a wolf. His own herd boys hunt him down and his dogs tear at his haunches. You loved Ishulanu, your father's gardener, who was always bringing you baskets of dates. They brightened your table every day. You lifted your eyes to him and went to him. My own Ishulanu, let us enjoy your strength, so put out your hand and touch our vulva. But Ishulanu said to you, Me? What do you want of me? Did my mother not beg for me? Did, did I not eat? What I eat with you would be loaves of dishonor and disgrace. Rushes would be my only covering against the cold. You listened as he said this, and you hit him. Turned him into a frog. Left him to stay amid the fruits of his labors. But the pole goes up no more. His bucket goes down no more. And how about me? You will love me and then treat me just like them. When Ishtar heard this, Ishtar was furious and went up to heaven. Ishtar went up and wept before her father Anu. Her tears flowed before her mother Antu. Father, Gilgamesh has shamed me again and again. Gilgamesh spelt out to me my dishonor, my dishonor, and my disgrace. Anu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to the princess Ishtar, Why didn't you accuse Gilgamesh, the king, for yourself? Since Gilgamesh spelt out your dishonor, your dishonor and your disgrace. Ishtar made her voice heard and spoke. She said to her father Anu, Father, please give me the bull of heaven and let me strike Gilgamesh down. Let me blank Gilgamesh in his dwelling. If you don't give me the bull of heaven, I shall strike blank. I shall set my face towards the infernal regions. I shall raise up the dead, and they will eat the living. I shall make the dead outnumber the living. Anu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to the princess Ishtar, On no account should you request the bull of heaven from me. There would be seven years of chaff in the land of Uruk. You would gather chalk instead of gems. You would raise grass instead of blank. Ishtar made her voice heard and spoke. She said to her father Anu, I have heaped up a store of grain in Uruk. I have insured the production of blank. Blank years of chafe. Blank years of chaff. Blank has been gathered. Blank grass. Blank for him. Gap of a few lines. Blank of the bull of heaven. Blank. Anu listened to Ishtar speaking, and he put the bull of heaven's reins in her hands. Ishtar took hold and directed it. When it arrived in the land of Uruk, it blank. It went down to the river and seven blank river blank. At the snorting of the bull of heaven, a chasm opened up, 
and one hundred young men of Uruk fell into it. Two hundred young men, three hundred young men. At its second snorting, another chasm opened up, and another hundred young men of Uruk fell into it. Two hundred young men, three hundred young men fell into it. At its third snorting, a chasm opened up, and Ankidu fell into it. But Ankidu leapt out. He seized the bull of heaven by the horns. The bull of heaven blew spittle into his face. With its thick tail, it whipped up its dung. Ankidu made his voice heard and spoke. He said to Gilgamesh, My friend, we were too arrogant when we killed Umbaba. How can we give recompense for our action? My friend, I have seen blank and my strength blank. Let me pull out blank. Blank. Let me seize blank. Let me blank in blank and plunge your sword blank in between the base of the horns and the neck tendons. Ankidu spun round to the bull of heaven and seized it by its thick tail and blank. Then Gilgamesh, like a butcher, heroic and blank, plunged his sword in between the base of the horns and the neck tendons. When they had struck down the bull of heaven, they pulled out its innards, set them before Shamash, backed away and prostrated themselves before Shamash. Then the two brothers sat down, and they were truly brothers now. Ishtar went up onto the wall of Uruk the sheepfold. She was contorted with rage. She hurled down curses. That man, Gilgamesh, who reviled me has killed the bull of heaven. Ankidu listened to Ishtar saying this, and he pulled out the bull of heaven's shoulder and slapped it into her face. If I could only get at you as that does, I would do the same to you myself. I would hang its intestines on your arms. Ishtar gathered the crimped courtesans, prostitutes, and harlots. She arranged for weeping over the bull of heaven's shoulder. Gilgamesh called craftsmen, all the armorers, and the craftsmen admired the thickness of its horns. Thirty minas of lapis lazuli was needed for each of their pouring ends. Two minas of gold was needed for each of their sheathings. Six core of oil was the capacity of both. He dedicated them for anointing his god Lugalbandu, took them in and hung them on his bed where he slept as head of the family. In the Euphrates, they washed their hands and held hands and came riding through the main street of Uruk. The people of Uruk gathered and gazed at them. Gilgamesh addressed a word to his retainers. Who is finest among the young men? Who is proudest among the males? Gilgamesh is finest among the young men. Gilgamesh is proudest among the males. Blank. We knew in our anger there is nobody like him who can please her. Blank. Blank. Gilgamesh made merry in his palace. Then they lay down. The young men were lying in bed for the night. And Ankidu lay down and had a dream. Ankidu got up and described the dream. He said to his friend, My friend, why are the great gods consulting together? And thus ends our first half of Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. This story is so beautiful in so many ways. It is a formulation of the hero myth. It is a formulation of the friendship myth, 
of finding communion and connection with people. It is a myth about someone finding purpose through not only meeting other people, but through acts of valor and acts of uh, good being done. And those acts of good might go against how the world is set up and built. Umbaba was put there by Alil, after all. Umbaba is supposed to be guarding the pine forest, but Umbaba is far from a good force. And it brings up the question, in our own human lives, as heroes, we are all a hero if we choose to be, as heroes, do we have the right to change what already is? And the Epic of Gilgamesh pretty firmly says, yeah, you actually should. Because honestly, there are a lot of problems in the pine forest, in a place where there might not be as much control. Now that could be linked to monarchy and kingship and colonization and a whole sort of other thing, less so to uh, uh, anti-paganism and uh, anti-animism and anti-naturalism, because those ideas really hadn't developed yet. Uh, Sumerian myth uh, and Babylonian myth was relatively polytheistic, as you can tell by this myth, with the references to Ninsun, Elil, Ea, Anu. There's so many different gods uh, and goddesses. Shamash. In, in the myth, we actually see, as I, as I spoke about previously, how there is a, an interplay between Anu and Inanna, or Ishtar, or Ishtar. I don't know exactly how to pronounce these names. It might be Inanna, it might be Inanna, it might be Ishtar, it might be Ishtar. There is an interplay between these two deities because they are the patron deities of Uruk. And so, in a way, when Gilgamesh is speaking to Ishtar, he is hating on his own city. He is spitting, he is spitting on his people, basically. He is spitting on a whole section of his people. And in a, in a way, I think that's a legitimate reason why Ishtar would be so angry. Along with him being pretty rude about her, uh, her previous relationships, which admittedly were not very good, although it does have a suggestion there. Um, there was that passage in which Gilgamesh is lambasting Inanna or Ishtar and saying how she's, you know, had all these different relationships. She's mean to people. She's not nice after love ends. It suggests somewhat of a Zeus-like figure for Ishtar uh, in part. Uh, in terms of like how sex functioned, right? We see relatively few references to sex other than in the character of Ishtar and Inanna, who are the same person, or Belad Ili. Basically, this goddess, this great goddess, this mother goddess, is the goddess of fertility, of everything that comes along with birth. That includes the birth of so many things. And it's actually kind of interesting because this ending part is sometimes different as well. Uh, I believe in the older versions, uh, Ankidu would just actually collapse through the hole. I believe that actually happens in one of the versions where there is not this triumphant, oh, we're going to kill the bull of heaven. It's, it's a tragic thing where Ankidu fails and falls and Gilgamesh must finish the, the fight, which is uh, very tragic and horrible. And you'll see in the next section, I don't want to give it away, but there is a lot more tragedy. This first section very much sets up the heroic myth. We have, it's, it's classical, right? We have the call to adventure. You know, Gilgamesh is hanging out in, in 
Uruk having sex with lots of young women. That's literally what it says. It says that he won't leave young girls alone, and he he won't he won't leave uh, young men alone either. Which maybe suggests that he was bi, or like it was just more normalized for men to have sex with other men, or at least boys, because it does say boys in here. Who knows, it's hard to say. So we have that call to adventure then when uh, Gilgamesh is told, hey, Ankidu has appeared. And Gilgamesh is like, hmm, what's going on? Someone to rival me? That eventually brings Ankidu into the city. You know, it's kind of a mutual thing. And it's that, it's 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 actually, you know, as I think about it more, it's not so much a call to adventure, the, the instant that Gilgamesh hears about Ankidu, it's that scuffle. That scuffle is that call to adventure. The brief struggle that Ankidu and Gilgamesh experience when Ankidu first gets to the city of Uruk, the sheepfold, is the point of the call to adventure. It's the moment where Gilgamesh is like, yeah, let's do something. Let's do something. Let's push each other. Let's do something that is going to better people's lives and change the world. Maybe that's saying something about how when we meet certain people, it pushes us to do certain things. And we learn so much from being around people. And as I said before, you know, there's this whole homoerotic subtext throughout the whole thing. But I think it also just goes to show that friendships aren't really as valued today as they could be. I really value friendships. I have a lot of friendships. Some people I don't keep up with enough. And, you know, it, it pains me, you know, when I realize, oh, it's been three months or six months or even a year since I've called people. You know, I think some of the reason why I value friendship so much is this myth, because this myth made me feel that my friendships were worth it, that those moments between people are so much bigger than romantic love in a way and make you change the way you, you even understand anything, anything and everything. And it's from that moment on that Gilgamesh is an active, dynamic character. Gilgamesh and Ankitu then go to the pine forest and slay Umbaba. This could be referred to as a trial or really the main course of the, of the myth in many ways because it represents this massive, impo almost impossible to defeat monster that is so common in mythology and oftentimes we we hook onto it because it's it makes us imagine things like what does umbaba look like i i kind of like to imagine that like umbaba umbaba or humbaba hmm i'm just like imagining for some reason this really horrific demon with six heads all with like really sharp teeth and each head has has many eyes and each and and there are two hands and each holds an axe yeah <laughs> and and like it's that kind of thing right there's literally nothing uh really talking about umbaba um in terms of the exact what umbaba looks like which i think is great it's that classic monster madness that's why the beginning of alien was so effective because the effects artists knew not to put that in the light, and the director knew not to put it in the light until later, because they knew how good of an effect it was. 
It's the same thing here. The storyteller knows, hey, let's not describe Umbaba fully because the audience can imagine Umbaba or someone could dress up like Umbaba and that would be really cool. And yeah, there's just so much room for this myth to have interpretation, which I think is so incredible. So as the myth goes on, Gilgamesh and Ankidu return to the, the sheepfold, the city of Uruk, and they start talking with Inanna. And all this time, you know, there's these dreams, there are these elements of mentorship from beyond, which fulfills that wise teacher role of the hero cycle. And there's even these moments where Gilgamesh has to kind of look into himself and say, why am I doing this? What should I do? When Umbaba is imploring Gilgamesh to spare him, uh, or spare them, <laughs> we don't know Umbaba's gender, it is only through the words of Ankidu that Gilgamesh can find the strength to finally slay Umbaba once and for all, even though Umbaba was kind of down for the count pretty quickly. And I think that shows that sometimes the victory isn't easy. I think a lot of people believe that everything's gonna work out, that Prince Charming is gonna, is gonna come on in and, and sweep you off your feet, right? Or Spider-Man's gonna swing through and take out the baddies. It's all, it's kind of the same stuff, right? Superheroes are very much modern myths, modern hero myths specifically. What they lack is specifically in this part, this very essential part of the hero cycle, which is the reckoning, the reckoning with victory. And this is actually absent from a lot of hero myths. And so it's not a, a constant thing, but I do think it's one of the most important parts of a, a truly honest hero myth that is trying to view a hero as an emotional human being. Because let's be honest here, Heracles is not the most emotional human being in the story. He does a, a, the occasional semi-emotional thing and he's more emotional in the latter parts of the story, similar to Gilgamesh in that way. There's not this reckoning that is going on in, within his head. Finally, I wanna to touch on the very ending of the myth with Inanna and, or Ishtar and her use of the bull of heaven and the implication of all of this. I really believe that this section is commenting on the gender binary and how women act and how men act. It's speculated that this region experienced a matriarchal society earlier uh, in history, somewhat because of the waning power of women that would occur as, uh, especially as Babylon grew to power, waned and then grew to power again. By the time we get to that second reign of power in Babylon, women are demonized and made to feel lesser within myth. And so we gotta really follow that line because, uh, and it mostly plays out with, with female goddesses because these are the people that are representative of womankind and all the different kinds of women. Ishtar is representative of both women who uh, were like housewives or the equivalent in Sumerian culture, as well as what the text refers to as harlots and courtesans. 
So there is some variance here, and it certainly does not peg women into one specific role, which is a very important thing, I think. However, it does peg men into certain holes and in certain ways uh, deals with how men should handle almost the problem of women, which is problematic in so many ways, of course, but is nonetheless something I think we should talk about because it's a, a significant part of the myth. We can't, we can't just, you know, skip over it. The main idea here that I want to get across is that not only does Gilgamesh talk about possessing women, and what will you do for me if, you, if I possess you, is what he says to Ishtar, which is pretty gross, dude. But he also keeps multiple women in different versions of the story, where in the beginning, it's a little more explicit that he's just palling around having sex with a bunch of people. In that way, women are seen as kind of expendable. Although, and here's the big but, because of course, this is a culture that has, was existing 4,000 years ago. The culture was different. And there was a whole different gender for women who did not have kids, but did have a lot of sex. These were priestesses who would uh, fulfill the role of sexual pleasure for men uh, in, the, in, in that culture. Now, I'm sure it was sort of reciprocal, and we don't have great uh, records of it, but these priestesses held very important roles in society, and it was understood that sex was extremely important in society at that time. Now, as patriarchy begins to grow in this region, we see that lesson. There becomes a more defined gender binary where there are not women who are not to have children. And that dissolves completely by the time that we get to the second Babylonian Empire. There's also a belief that women should be secondary in a way. If, if you notice in the myth, the only woman who has any prominent role other than advisor is Ishtar. And Ishtar is also representing a stereotype. Whereas Gilgamesh and Ankidu get to not really represent anything, but represent something new in a way. Gilgamesh is a newness, and Ankidu is also a newness uh, at the time. Gilgamesh was a bit more established, I suppose, in sort of the ancestry and culture there. However, he would have been seen as a man beyond the men of before because of his uh, relation to the gods. So in many ways, this myth raises men above women, which, as I said, I take massive issue with, and, and it's mostly in that final section of the, of the myth where, where we see that. And it really doesn't continue either from my memory. I think there's a little bit of it later, but the myth is surprisingly egalitarian about the sexes, other than in, in this uh, sixth tablet, where uh, Ishtar is the primary antagonist. And in that way, you know, maybe women can be the antagonist and uh, represent a stereotype, right? Like, I'm kind of a stereotype, we're all kind of stereotypes, so in a way we can't fault a work for using stereotype, especially when the concept of a stereotype probably didn't even exist back then. So maybe I'm problematizing this to a, a problematic degree, 
but it's nonetheless important to understand it when we read it in the modern day through this lens because we have to read everything in the modern day. We, we have to, of course, bring in historical references and ideas uh, present in the region and have an understanding of how history might, you know, contextually affect the myth. But more importantly than all of that is how we understand it because it, it's going to form what we even can think about it. So what we have learned impacts what we can learn from a myth. Well, that's a whole bunch to say that we got another part coming right up. So uh, stay tuned for the next episode in which we will finish off the Epic of Gilgamesh. And trust me, the myth gets a lot more interesting from here on. It's not just a normal hero cycle and follows a bit more of a Raglan hero cycle or a rebirth cycle. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and engaging in discussion within the comments. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode will be continuing, of course, with the Epic of Gilgamesh, Part 2, Tablets 7 through 12. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now for today's last word. Today's last word is... Cooperation.